the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been to Vatican City, even seen a picture of St. Peter's Square, you know the giant obelisk in the center. It's 3,200 years old. It's made in Egypt originally. Brought to Rome around 37 AD, where it became part of the Roman circus. And so uh, many of the early Christians who were martyred probably were martyred around that obelisk. Scholars think that St. Peter was, was probably actually one of the last things that St. Peter saw uh, when he was crucified upside down in around the year 67. In any case, the obelisk has been there for about 1,500 years. Well, sat there, rather, for about 1,500 years. It's 25 meters tall, 350 tons. Um, you're not going to put it on your shoulders and move it. Um, but you guys know we as a church sometimes have big ideas. Uh, and so 16th century, we have Pope Sixtus V, who wants to move it. He says, you know, this has a lot of significance for us as Christians. And so he wants it moved from Nero's Circus to St. Peter's Square. So I'm going to read an account of, or one account rather, of the story. You might know this story, and I'm sorry to say, I don't know if it's true or not. It's not, it should be. But here we go. Nearly 1,000 men and hundreds of horses were pulling on thick ropes attached to the obelisk in order to raise it to the vertical. Thousands of dignitaries and citizens of Rome were assembled to watch the raising but they were restrained to silence under penalty of death by order of the Pope, so that the commands of the chief architect, Domenico Fontana, could be heard. By noon, the obelisk had been raised to 45 degrees, but the midday sun so heated the ropes that they began to lengthen and to slide on the capstans. The obelisk began to sag inelegantly toward the earth. Despite the harsh commands of Fontana, nothing would avail. At this critical point, an old Genoese sailor by the name of Bresca could restrain himself no longer and shouted out, Water to the ropes! Water to the ropes! Instead of executing the man, Fontana commanded that the workers throw water on the ropes. This caused the ropes to contract, to stick to the capstans, and the raising of the obelisk proceeded without further incident. Again, I don't know if the story is true, but it's a good story. Um, I've heard that sometimes it's, it's, a, it's told as, as a boy who saw what was happening um, and yelled out something else. Others will say that the, uh, the penalty from the Pope was excommunication. Whatever it was, whatever the, whatever the story was, we see first, really, that the mind and the will of Bresca, the sailor, right, are totally in tune with that of the architect, Fontana. It meant that Bresca could give Fontana the, the autonomy to do his job, the way he needed to, but he also brought his own expertise to bear on the situation, even though the explicit command, penalty of death, was to the contrary. So Bresca had a choice, right? Easy enough. He had a choice. He can let the project fail, or he can risk his own death to see it succeed. I'd like to frame the choice a little differently, though. I want to put it like this. Bresca either could have slavishly served the institution for the sake of the institution itself, or he could generously serve the founder of the institution, the architect of the institution, and his purpose. You see, on the one hand, we can see 
that we, we, we might look at his words as impertinent, brash. But you know, you look in the history of the church and what happens. We see that reformers in the church, all throughout the church's history, have faced kind of opposition. Do I stick with the institution or do I stick with the founder of the institution? You think of St. John, John of the Cross, kidnapped and imprisoned by members of his own order because they didn't want to see his reforms, which were needed. You think of St. Thomas Aquinas, leaves his family, kidnapped by his family, his brothers, thrown into a tower because he wants to become a Dominican priest. Padre Pio, who was silenced for years by church authorities because they thought he was nuts. They didn't know what was going on. So what's the point of all this? It's a good question for all of us to consider. We have to answer the same question, just like John of the Cross, just like Padre Pio, just like Thomas Aquinas. And I want to put it like this, though, for each of us. The question is, whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? Because ostensibly... Right? We serve the Lord. This is the desire. This is where our hearts are. So often we don't, though. So often I'm serving a structure that's meant to bring me to him, but that doesn't. So I'm going to make a brief side comment here. I'm not, intentionally not, at all, speaking about the Mass. I'm not speaking about the extraordinary form of the Mass versus the ordinary form of the Mass. I don't want anybody to hear that. Um, just to be clear about that. Um, we can be either the Pharisee or the publican, frankly, the tax collector, whether we love the extraordinary form or the ordinary form. We can find ourselves in both camps. This is not a thinly and poorly veiled criticism of the extraordinary form, which I am currently celebrating. So I just want to say that um, to make sure that, that, that that's clear. We look at the Pharisee in the gospel today. What was he doing? He served the structures. He said, look, God, look at all the ways that I am a perfect Jew. Look at all the ways that I'm serving you. That's how he puts it. And actually, it's funny. If you notice, the gospel says he wasn't praying to God. He says God. The gospel says he prays to himself. This is a man that is so concerned with his own person that even in his attempts to pray to God, he's not even praying to God. He's praying to himself. The tax collector, publican, that guy, he thinks, shouldn't even be here. Who is he to darken the doors of a church, darken the doors of the temple? But you know what's interesting is that the tax collector knows the Lord in a way that the Pharisee doesn't. He knows the Lord in a way that, that the Pharisee doesn't. He knows his place before God. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just like the sailor knew his place before the architect. The publican also knew, though, God and his merciful purpose. He didn't just know that God is great, almighty, infinite, beyond me. And no one can appear before God unless he is clean. He knew that. And yet, he takes this step, which to the Pharisee, that's certain death. You don't come before God unless you're perfect. 
That's how he understands God. That's, how, that's who he sees God to be. And so while the publican then has the courage to cross that line, the Pharisee doesn't because he's stuck in himself. So for us, and this is, this is really a cause for, for continual reflection. It's not just a thing that, okay, I got it. I'm focused here. All right, we know just because of the, the, the brokenness of our own human nature that we're constantly being pulled down, pulled back again, back into the muck of sin and whatever else we happen to fall into, imperfections. If my service to God and to his church is just to keep the institution of the structure going as if the, the status quo was good just because it's the status quo, I'm never going to cross that line that the public can cross. I'm never going to cross that line. I'm never going to take a risk because in my heart of hearts, I don't believe in God. I believe in myself. You see, that's the, that's the, the lie of the Pharisee. That's what he gets stuck in. He doesn't believe in God. He believes in himself. He believes in his efforts and how he can accomplish everything. He might as well be the savior of the world. He's not. I'm not. You're not. He is. So we could say that the goal of my Christian life is not so much to perpetuate a form of the church on earth. It's actually to perpetuate the work of God in his church on earth. That's something very different. It looks different. And so we see that so much in the church grows and changes and shifts while so much in the church also stays the same because the, the church, she knows the core. She knows to what she must be faithful. I don't think it's an attitude, though, that we should only apply to the church. We really need to be applied to like every structure, institution in the rest of the world. Otherwise, we risk saying that I'm a Catholic here and when I think about the church. Whereas we know that we're also called to bring our relationship with God, our understanding of God, our understanding of the world, to bear on every place that we find ourselves. So family, school, job, society, election. And of course, as I already said, the church. We can't be continually falling back on the status quo. It's, just, it's what we do because we've always done it. So what is the status quo then? It can be all sorts of things, right? I can't give you an exhaustive list. But because, as St. Paul says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, anything contrary to the gospel becomes a stat- can become a status quo that wants to keep us from finding full and authentic freedom in Christ. You see, that's the danger. So we always have to be on the lookout, continually on the lookout. By God's grace, to notice that, to push it away, and to come back to him who desires to give us freedom, as he says so often in the Gospels. So we think about families. A lot of times in society, in in the Catholic Church, we see families that have two ends of the spectrum. They don't care on the one level. I'm Catholic. I went to Catholic school. I don't practice. We see this a lot, right? The other side, pardon the image, we can have families whose experience of God is more like an angry, nagging wife. 
very oppressive, very difficult, very painful, not, doesn't draw anybody to him. It hurts. And so we end up having this image of God that is, as I said, painful, and not one that I want to draw close to. Neither of those recognize who God is. I mean, is God Father? Isn't he Father? Isn't he totally dedicated to us who are his children? Doesn't he primarily encourage us? Doesn't he nurture us? Doesn't he chastise us? Not for the sake of keeping us down, but again, for the sake of encouragement to help us to grow. Schools? Do schools stifle learning? Does your school stifle learning? Do you feel like when you are are, are supposed to be studying, I don't care, what am I doing here? Am I just trying to get the grade? Is that the most important thing? Is that what schools, is that that what learning's about? Isn't it about entering into God's creation, which is good because he is good, because he's created it? Isn't it, shouldn't it be a cause for rejoicing when we discover it? Shouldn't it be something that draws us close to God? Does learning really have value without him? Does it have value if I don't know him? We can do the same thing with jobs. Is job, is my job, is my work, is it just a necessary evil? Something I have to do just so I can have free time to waste playing Pokemon Go or whatever it happens to be, right? Isn't this how we see job, work? I just got to get it done. Work's part of man's dignity, right? Isn't it supposed to be something through which, by which, we participate in God's ordering of creation? And of course, after Christ, we participate in the reordering of creation. Can't this be something that contributes to the good of society? It's supposed to be an act of love, right? Meant for my family. So often we leave it, again, as something that Again, a a burden, something oppressive. God didn't intend it to be that way. Society. Society, we can have so much social commentary, um, so I'll be careful uh, from the pulpit. But it's easy enough to think or to see how society tends to be focused on one thing. It's me. That is all society cares about, right? Self. We have this idea, we can talk about where it comes from, we have this idea, though, that man is just a greedy creature, he's got to make contracts with others so you don't kill me and take my stuff. But all, so, so much of our, of our laws and our systems are about, just to protect me and my stuff, so you, evil people out there, can't take my stuff. What a way to relate to fellow human beings. What a way to consider our common brotherhood. Again, we're sons and daughters of, of God, of a provident father. Someone who's generously and who willingly takes care of his children. Someone who can't be outdone in generosity. Someone who, when we seek to love as he calls us to, is always right there with us. It really becomes a question for us. When are we going to take concrete steps to change these little things in 
Like my little piece of the pie, my part of society that I live in. Some people have more influence than others, and we can say, well, I don't, you know, no one, no one listens to me. I don't have any kind of influence or any major influence here, there, or, or wherever. It doesn't matter. It's not about, I'm not, you know, trying to so- foment social revolution or anything like that. What I am trying to do, though, is to encourage you to sanctify every moment in your daily life. I do this as an act of love. I order my little piece of the pie in this way as an act of love for the sake of my family, for the sake of my loved ones, my friends, for the sake of the common good. You see, we have to choose in ways that we are able to be the presence of Christ in the world. That means real goodness. In everything I do, care for the weakest and the most vulnerable, promotion of stable families, authentic religious freedom. All of these things are things that, even if I'm not doing something on a, on a national or on, a, on a, a large scale, I can live it out in my life, in every part of my life, by seeking to love God and to love my neighbor. It really is just the gospel. But we can forget the concrete reality that the gospel calls us to. We don't want to live a caricature of the gospel. We don't want to live the status quo. The status quo that is good because it's just the status quo. No, if the status quo is good, it's because it's good, not because it's the status quo, right? And so our call then, as we enter completely into relationship with Christ, who is the Lord, as we approach his altar in a few short moments, our purpose here is to seek the good, who is first of all a person, well, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We seek the good, such that through us, who are sons and daughters of God, the presence of Christ might be again made present, concretely present, in particular ways, in family, society, job, school, election, the church. This is our goal. And by God's grace, and by his presence living within us, it will happen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.